welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, learning sciences, and instructional design. In this episode, we discuss more about the understanding by design process, as well as various ways of getting students engaged right at the start. But first, I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Danielle. Please tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, my name is Danielle. I currently teach Algebra 1 in a school in Queens. And I'm doing my master's in special ed at Adelphi. And I don't know if you know what a renewal school is. Basically, in the city, if the school has been failing before, it gets put on a list. And basically, the state keeps an eye on you. There's all these mandates. They come in for visits and they try to get the kids passing rate up. So that's really been a big thing for us to get them to pass the regents because before it was at like, 25% were passing the regions, 50% were graduating. So really low statistics that we're working with. That sounds like a stressful environment. Yeah, it's definitely stressful. It's good experience. Even as a first year teacher, it's definitely hard, but it's helped me become a better teacher, I think, in the end. Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot you can learn. Well, I guess there's a lot you can learn from any setting, but Yeah, absolutely. When you are put in a kind of a situation where things are not ideal, you are forced to think more independently or... More creatively, too, I think, because the resources aren't really available either. So it's like you you have to definitely think on your toes a lot, which is helpful, I think, in the end. Sure. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of the readings? So I really like that in the past, it's been how do we implement this UBD with activities and lessons but this really gave the concrete like lesson plan standards how do you reach those things through UBD and I really like that they said you know you don't have a step-by-step perfect recipe to do it and it's just understanding you know the background of it and trying to apply it based on what you can and I think that's really important in teaching Mm -hmm. because we're constantly learning and growing there's no You don't know what you're walking into every day. You don't know how the kids are going to be. You don't know how your lesson's going to go for one class or another. So I think that was really good for the authors to point out that it's not set in stone. Yeah, because if you go in and expect things to unfold exactly how you wrote it down, then you're not going to be prepared for, you know, like any circumstances that pop up. Right. And they talked about it as like cooking a lot, which is what I brought up because that's something I can relate to. And I said... Me and my dad cook a lot and it's, we keep trying these family recipes and we say it comes out better every time. And it's the same thing with teaching. You can't expect a lesson or a unit to be perfect um, the first time you teach it. But we're on this kind of time crunch from admin. So I just don't know what your opinion on that is. Do you think teachers should be given time to go back and look at a unit and make changes? Or is it like once you're done, we're moving on to the next one? Can you go into a little bit more about what you mean by the admin part? Yeah. So like if admin saying, okay, you finished unit six, we ended it. You should be on unit seven tomorrow. Mm. Whereas like maybe sometimes you need to redo it or go back and make changes or reteach something. So I think that's important, but we usually don't have the time to do that. When you were asking about due dates for units, do you mean that they want you to turn your unit in ahead of time? Yeah, and then finish it by a certain time, too, I think is really the big thing. Like, you have to be done by May mm. 1st with this on um, a whole department scale. <laughs> that's a really tough question. Because obviously, if that's what the administration wants, it's hard to push back on that and not do it, right? 
I would think that one possible way to deal with it is to see if it's possible to design the unit and lessons in a way kind of like the spiral curriculum that they kind of talk about in the reading. And then we also talk in our class discussions in a way that you keep revisiting things so that topics are not just ignored once you move on from it. I imagine with math, that would be the case that you can keep just keep building up on it and have review sessions when necessary. Yeah, absolutely. And I try to to get around that. Definitely do do nows that they may need more help with, even if it's from previous units. So at least they can kind of see that that idea again. And that's like the same thing with entry points we were talking about. Like that is definitely my entry point is regents questions and seeing what the regents likes Hmm. Um, to ask about a certain unit. So that's what my administration has focused on because we are so focused on getting them to pass the regents, even though, hmm. you know, we've talked about that taking the test at the end is not really a whole snapshot of the year. But um, yeah. that and like a topic specifically would definitely be my entry points. But I like that they talked about starting a unit with a favorite activity to like kind of draw them in. I thought that was really interesting too, instead of just like a regents question, because they do get bored of it easily. <laughs> Are all the teachers doing the same thing? Yes. So any class culminating in a regents, they like to see regents do nows and exit tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually have like a check for understanding regents question. But obviously you have to build up to them because they are on, we tested them, they're on like a third grade math level. So the regent's wording even is a little difficult for them. Chapter 11 does talk about different entry points. And one of them is uh, the test, the significant test Mm -hmm. or key assessment. So it sounds like it's a fine way to start a unit. I think it just a lot depends on the situation you're in. And if that's how it, it needs to start, then it's not wrong or it's not necessarily a bad thing. I was looking at the lesson plan example on page 260 in figure 11-2 about the social studies third grade class. And even if you don't teach social studies, it's probably kind of recognizable in that it it has a game, it has all these fun things. And I was thinking that it's not uncommon for novice teachers to have lessons like this. What do you think? I definitely agree. I think almost my lessons look like that probably in my first few years of college when you're kind of in that dream classroom like you haven't really taught in a classroom yet but this is how you would ideally like it to go right all these games and it's fun and you're not really understanding the standards and everything yet or how it relates or the psychology behind certain activities so definitely I think that was probably like my freshman year course if I went back to my files that's probably exactly what it looked like Hmm. but I definitely think even as from the beginning of the year to now, my lesson plans have changed and gotten a little more in depth. How do you think it has changed? I know more about like student misconceptions and where to start um, and how to address those misconceptions in a way where they'll see it and then it won't happen as often. But also now I feel like I know my kids too by April, whereas September I had no idea really what I was doing. Mm. But I think that's common. For a lot of new teachers too is like it's a lot of trial and error like they were saying or that cooking recipe Mm. you have to try different things and experience different things and then it works out but um definitely easier for me to write a lesson plan now than it was in september i do find cooking to be a very good metaphor for teaching because yeah it's just anytime anyone who's followed a recipe whether it's from a book or from like a family recipe it's hard to recreate it exactly as you get it, especially if 
you're adapting some things that are not available in where you are. And that's kind of like teaching, especially if, when you, and again, this is kind of analogous to cooking as well. Like when you go online and look for a recipe or look for a lesson plan, you still need to adapt it to your personal taste, what you have readily available. And I'm just thinking now, like my dad is recently gluten-free and now we have to, you know, readjust all these Italian pasta breadcrumbs recipes for him. So that's actually a really good point. I never even thought about that. That's like UDL. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's so all... it's good for him. It's good for us. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So after the lesson plan example, they gave examples of how the teacher could have used the UBD template to develop a better lesson plan. And actually for the unit plan assignment, I used to have students fill out the template. So if you look at, I think in the examples I showed in class, they all start with an UBD template and I changed it a little bit so that it's not that intense. I don't... Yeah, that's probably the right word. Do you think the template would have been helpful? I mean, I'm not going to assign it now, so don't worry. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I was wondering, like, if you, when you look at like the example on page 263, yeah. do you think it would be helpful? I think intense is definitely the right word. Like, looking at it, I just feel like it is intense. But I do feel like all these things I have in my lesson plans, just in different sections, maybe, they definitely do have the essential questions, what the students can do, what they will do the performance tasks and any activities. Um, I just feel like mine might be a little more spread out and in a different way. I think it might, it would have been helpful maybe to see it, but I definitely don't think I would write a lesson plan like this just because it is kind of intense. But I think it gets that backwards design message right. across because you have the goals right at the top right. and then the essential questions so it kind of makes sense right. and it starts with the desired results which i know me personally like i don't think that way often sure so it's trying to get yourself in that mindset of starting from big and getting small i mean it's a graphic organizer right yeah absolutely and it has its benefits i, I partly because they had said that UBD is not intended to be a prescriptive step-by-step -step thing. And I think assigning that would turn it into that. There's no step-by-step -step perfect guide to doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to try something and not have it work. And it's like in a different job, you could be trained in a week and all of a sudden you're good to go. Like you're done. <laughs> but I feel like even 25 years of teaching, you still have things to learn. And it's because every class is different. Every student is different. The connections that you make between each other and the connections that the kids are going to make to the content is different every year, especially with technology coming into it. I'm sure it's worlds different. It's even different from when I was in high school and that wasn't that long ago. But I feel like any step-by-step -step guide would only work for maybe a few years and then they'd have to revise it anyway. So I thought that that was interesting that they're reading Draw, like drew upon that because not a lot of readings say that and that it's okay that it's not perfect and it's the nature of our work yeah and it's not just technology it's also um learning theories yeah and psychology yeah everything. yeah i mean we've read a few chapters from this book already and when I was just looking at the whole text as a whole, I noticed that they really didn't build on a lot of specific theories. There were a few that they did build on. Universal design actually doesn't show up in their language. It's not to say that universal design is not good or bad, but I think maybe part of what they're trying to do is to make sure that they're not going to be tied down to what the flavor of the day is. Right. And a lot of these approaches are, I don't want to say fads, it's, they're a little bit more than fads, but 
they're yeah they go through phases. Yes. And、um, the only research that they cite a lot of is the Bransford reading that we also read that seems to have stood the test of time and continues to. So it's just not just technology. I think they were going for a, a, an audience so that when you look at this later on and it's still relevant, the overall steps aren't outdated. When you said like technology has changed even since you were in high school, what are some changes that you've noticed? So I think Smartboard was just starting、mm-hmm. to happen, and none of these online programs were in place. Like Desmos, I know、mm-hmm. Jonathan did in his.、Um, <laughs> what I did mine, Imagine Math, all this、um, Nearpod. I don't remember who did that.、Um, I think Nicole. But, I think yeah, there were two people who did it. A bunch of them did it. Yeah, which I've actually used now in my classroom. It's just amazing, and I know it's only three things, but there's like everything that gets brought up. None of those things were、um, in place. The virtual field trips, like. The virtual reality headsets in my other class, and that was crazy. What was the topic?、And、it was for grad school, and they、oh. were just showing us how to use it. But definitely, an English class actually used it. They're reading the Kite Runner, so they、mm. transported them to、um, whatever countries that set in. I think Iraq or Iran, one of the two. And the kids were able to keep the glasses and the goggles on while they were reading, and you know, transport themselves to that place,、mm-hmm. and they could see it and feel it. And then they don't really get that from a book, so it was nice to see that happen. I don't really know how I could do that in math,、mm. but. For English, it was definitely helpful. Social studies. There's some、yeah. interesting augmented reality things that you might play with. They might be kind of a cool way to use technology that is possibly easily available. Are smart boards still huge? Yeah, I use them, but in a way, I think well, years ago it was just in that like substitution phase. Whereas, like, I'm trying to use it more than a whiteboard, you know.、Mm-hmm. So having an activity in there for a purpose, not just for the kids to write on or touch or anything. So that's been the harder part to f- figure out how to get that higher level. What are some other thoughts you have about this chapter? I just think this chapter was really real for teachers, and they addressed all the common things you go through. Like you could have this perfect step by step thing, and it. You have all these other dilemmas that you face too. So this doesn't work, or part A doesn't work, but B does. So especially the part where it was talking about complex, realistic, and messy performance versus efficient and sound tests. So that's like an authentic assessment versus you know a pencil and paper. Here's Regents' questions, sit and do them kind of thing. And I just did like a real world. Assessment for my statistics unit. They gathered data from the class and they did、um, mean, median, mode, and histograms and all this dot plot stuff, and it really helped them understand statistics more than I think if I just gave them regions questions. So even though it is messy and it did take more time than a test would, I think it was really good and. We were able to tie it into the curriculum map and time it, so that was good. And I just think that that feedback that I got from students was a good way for me to understand. Okay, they like this kind of thing. Like maybe this is something I can do, and it helped me know right away: is this going well? Is this not going well? And they had a rubric too where they rated their learning, which is what I said, their participation. Anything they'd like to change, so it was a rubric that I was grading them on, and then the rubric they were grading me on. So I think that was helpful for after that project specifically. But I don't know if that would be helpful after each lesson or weekly, or if that would take kind of like power away from the teacher or what. Have you just started using the rubric for the students, or for the students to use it? Yeah, it was just that 
project, honestly. So, but I know teachers that use it weekly as like a participation grade. They grade themselves and then they grade the week lesson. And it's like divided into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then they like grade themselves one through five. So I'm guessing it's not anonymous. No, maybe it would be more helpful if it was anonymous. Well, I mean, then you can't do the participation grade thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think this might be something you want to ask the students. It sounds like even if they do it after every lesson, you're not asking them a lot of questions. It seems like it's a very quick thing. I guess the more important thing is to make sure that they take it seriously. That kind of goes in like that dilemma on page 269 where they have all those dilemmas. Teacher control versus learner control. I think it is good to get the students' opinions. What do they like? What do they not like? Do you still have questions? So even though it is time, I think it's sometimes that it's the expert's job to guide the learning. It is important to get that from the students too. So other than the teacher versus learner control, and I think the depth versus breadth of knowledge Mm -hmm. dilemma, which I think are probably the ones that are easiest to identify. Have you experienced any of the other ones? Yeah, I think the one that stuck out to me the most was comfort and a feeling of competence versus a real challenge. My kids, they're so turned down like their whole life. They've been told they can't do things. And so they like that comfort of an easy question that they all get right. And it's been a struggle the whole year to have to give them some challenge problems and say, it's okay to not understand this right away. It's okay to get this wrong. Here's my paper. Mm. Look, I crossed out all this work. And then I finally got it at the bottom and that usually helps them. But I think it's definitely easier as a teacher to give those easy questions because then they are comforted and you're comforted. But it is more helpful to give that challenge question because it gets them to think on that higher level. Yeah. And also, the I would imagine the regions wouldn't hold back on what questions. So I think yeah. in some ways, you, you still need to make sure that they are able to perform at the higher level you can manage the context so like showing them how you approach it and also making it a more risk-free environment I think that often helps a lot of them play sports so I said do you step on the field and make a shot from half court the first time you step on the court and they were like no so then I said okay so it's no different with any other academic subject you have to practice you have to go to practice to get that skill so that has helped them been able to you know take that risk and be more comfortable because they're practicing this isn't like the end all be all championship game kind of thing and you, you find that they do respond to it yeah because most of them do play sports or they watch sports at least so I It's like, all right, if I went down to the gym right now, could I make that shot? And I've never played basketball in my life. Mm -hmm. And it gets them, I think, not only to relate to it, but to really open up a little more and understand that it's okay that, you know, they're not making that shot right now, but maybe in a few months they will. What did you think about how in the section that follows, they talked about their humble advice of grappling with the dilemmas? I thought it was nice that they gave that advice and you know, said to get that feedback from students and see how it was going and to go back and make adjustments. And really that perfect dream unit may not be so good when you implement it. So it's just that constant expert learner, expert teacher thing, go back and look and make sure that all the results and everything has a purpose. And even though you did get stuck a little bit on this part, maybe we could fix that and it'll be better next time. But 
then maybe next time something else will go wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just having that mentality that it's okay to change things and back it up. So and then we also read chapter 12, The Big Picture. And uh, it started with a quotation from Jerome Bruner. What do you think of the quotation, first of all? And also, have you heard of Jerome Bruner? Because he's been cited a few times just as an educational philosopher. I was wondering, have you heard of him? And then what do you think about the quotation? I have never heard of him. I did have to look him up. So I know he's a psychologist and a researcher for education now. But the quote I liked that for any subject you're teaching, you have to think about if it's worth knowing and if it makes that kid a better adult and if they need to know these things as an adult. And if you can't answer yes to those things, then you don't need it. Mm -hmm. But my only question was like, how can I justify that for every topic of algebra? My kids ask me that all the time. Like, why do I need this? Why do I need this? Why do I need this? And you can only say it applies to the real world so many times before they don't take that as an answer anymore. So I don't think every part of the curriculum I'm teaching really would say yes for these two questions. For me, my experience learning math was that math was about equations and formulas and putting numbers into those formulas and knowing how to do them correctly. And I was looking at a unit and I was looking at the units of your other peers who are also doing math. And some of them have more relation. I mean, some of the topics in general have more direct connection to the real world. So like probability, I can see that having more of a, a specific connection. But I imagine every mathematical topic is connected to the real world. For me, I'm still not sure whether there is a way to make that connection more clear. So your unit was about quadratic equations, right? Yes. What's a real world usage of it? For that, it's actually easy because there's a lot of shapes, parabolas in real life. So rainbows, bridges, aqueducts even the path of a basketball going into the hoop, Mm -hmm. um, a football, any kind of projectile type motion follows that motion. So it's easier, I think, to relate that. Um, And I know Jonathan's doing the same unit as me, and he did a Desmos activity that I've used in class before, and they shoot the basketball with online and try to get it in the hoop based on, you know, how high their quadratic function is or how low. So that definitely is a real world application for them. But something like, I know Brianna's doing factoring. I don't really know how that would directly apply to something real life. But it probably does, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think if I sat and thought about it for a little bit, I could probably think of a way. But um, right now I can't think of a way for at least polynomial factoring to get them to relate to that. I don't know if he necessarily means like a specific usage, like in everyday life, people sit down and say, okay, I need to use quadratic equations or whatever. You know, I don't think it means in such a literal way, because he says it's worth knowing. He didn't even talk about like practical stuff. And so I think it's just a matter of trying to make that connection more apparent and clear right. and so part of it is you telling them and part of it is again the spiral that maybe that's why the spiral thing is so useful is that if you keep revisiting the things they may see it for themselves that things are connected like this unit was connected to the last unit and right. this year was connected to the last year that kind of thing it's almost hard for us who are not students anymore i mean i guess you're te- right. you are technically a technically, student. yeah, but different but yeah. how mystifying 
school can yeah. be. Just how arbitrary sometimes these things are boxed into these things. And also that's right. another thing that's also very artificial, like content errors and well, content errors themselves, but even within content error that they're not, the real world's not really boxed into that way. But for convenience, we box it in that way. And so I think those connections can be when people take these in different years or different levels, they might not see the connection as easily. Yeah. And I think too, even for content, like obviously my content is math, the highest I can go up to teaching in high school would be AP calculus. But in college, I was taking, you know, real analysis, complex analysis, all this abstract stuff that I felt like wasn't really applicable to what I was doing. So that's why I did feel that, you know, mystification of uh, why am I doing this kind of thing if I'm only going to be teaching algebra, geometry, or pre-calc, that kind of stuff. So I think they go through that too. If they want to be, I don't know if they want a certain job, but it's easy to relate math to different jobs, I think. So that's an easy answer for them. What did you think of the cross-disciplinary question section on page 80 that starts on 281? Some subjects fit together more naturally than others, and some of those essential questions could be answered by like an English or social studies, but I felt like it was hard to do for math or science or anything else. Well, obviously, what's new and what's old? Have we run across this idea before? That's great for math, and that's that whole connection for mm -hmm. them. They could answer that themselves. Again, why does it matter? That's that real-world application. How do we know what we know? That's really important in math and Actually, I think everything, like that's that analysis part of Bloom's, how do you know what you're talking about? And that's really big at our school too. Our kids really can't get that deeper analysis. So they have the evidence, but they can't link it back after that. So I thought that essential question was important. Are you talking about math specifically? Anything. It's um, We do grade level work and we look at student work from every subject and we notice that analysis was lacking in every subject so they're able to you know take evidence from the text in english or social studies they're able to take evidence from an experiment in science or from a word problem in math but they're not able to explain how they know what they know so i think that was like a huge huge cross-disciplinary essential question that they brought up mm. And then I think just the perspective one was one that I thought that math would be hard to answer, like what group I belong to or why do people join groups? That's the one they were talking about. And then you also had a question about the cross-disciplinary essential questions. Right. So like math and social studies, could they ever have a cross-disciplinary question together? I know that like math and science could definitely work together in English and social studies could 100% work together, but could it be math and science or English and science or something? I want to say that it is possible to link any two content areas. Right. Certainly some will be easier than others. Like you said, math and science, language arts and social studies. Like math stuff doesn't really come natural to me, but I, I'm more of, of a kind of a language arts history person. And right. when I was years later, when I was in grad school, I read a book about the number zero and, and it kind of went through the history of that. And then it touched on geometry and algebra and, and all that concept. And I, I suddenly felt like my understanding of math improved because I was connecting with the history part of it. Right. You know, certainly a lot of mathematical ideas are very old, right? And so I feel like there would be connections there. I feel like that could be possible ways of making connections. Another thing was I was uh, I looked at this video. I'll 
Maybe I'll share it, but it, it's called, um, it was a TED Talk by someone who works at Quest University in Canada. They were talking about how they got a math and a music professor to teach a class together. And this is, so this That's is really a university cool. class. Right. And one of the things that the university tries to do is not to have professors housed in specific buildings, which is most, most universities yeah. do that. Right. Um, when the professor's room is next to someone who is not in the discipline and they're kind of forced to talk to each other, they would find areas of uh, common areas and, and there's more collaboration. So it kind of goes back to what I said earlier about content areas, that these boxes are in our heads. They don't really exist. Like There is no boundary between math and social studies in the, in the real right. world. Um, we put it there. And even like in sometimes when, uh, well, myself included, and in voice thread and podcasts, people would say, well, I, I don't do math, I don't do history, I don't do writing. I feel like a lot of these boundaries are, are kind of part of what the school system creates in us, yeah, exactly. which is not helpful. So, no. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like a part of it is a organizational problem, but at the same time, it could be a place where you can be really creative. Right. And I think I was drawn to those too, because I did go in um into college as a social studies and education major and then I switched to math so my brain is kind of wired in a different way whereas like most people like you said even though it's not supposed to be with those um boundaries but a lot of people that are good in English are good in social studies and the ones that are good in math are good in science and that's kind of what they tell you but that's true that I definitely see it in myself that I really enjoy history and I'm good at math kind of thing what else do you think about that chapter? So I took that quote, typical curriculum frameworks emphasize lists of discrete content knowledge and skills. And they were talking about coverage and uncoverage. So I was thinking about my own units. The Regents tells you, Engage New York tells you you need to cover certain things. And we talked about that last week. But I was wondering if every unit needs to be uncovered or if it's okay to just kind of breeze over things that aren't really a huge enduring idea of the course. I think for me, the idea of uncoverage is to uncover the deeper understanding and the deeper learning. So it could be that you, you will have to cover certain things, but make sure that the deeper understanding is uncovered in a more efficient way. Because I think the idea is that, I think the benefit of the under uncovering versus covering in the way that they're defining it is that you're making those connections. Because the problem with cover is that it's not connected and you don't really see the relationship. Or maybe the teacher sees it, but the student doesn't. So I think that's the benefit. And maybe that's another way where you were talking about the timing issue and all that. So the more connections you can make between the topics, the better it is. Looking at the rubrics section that starts on page 285, I was surprised at how many levels they were. Some of them had six. Yeah, there's one that has eight. And then one had eight. And I was wondering what you thought of that because it takes a lot of time to write the rubrics. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's a lot. I think it's a little overwhelming for a kid even to look at. I mean, and I'm personally someone who gives the students the rubric so that, you know, they can say, oh, I did this, I did this, I did this, we're good. So I think like four sections is probably where I would stop. Six to eight seems like a lot. And I don't even know how you, if there's even a big difference between the levels, like first um, on page 286, Level six is the communication's unusually clear. 
and then level five is the communication is clear so like what's that Mm. difference what how do you know if something's unusually clear or just clear yeah i mean you can see that it's kind of building up to a certain thing i do agree that unusually clear is unusually not clear in this case yeah exactly yeah I guess that goes to show that there are no particular rules about the number of levels in the rubrics. Some use three. I guess you probably need at least three. If you want to go as much as eight, that's probably doable. I was just curious about that. I do find it personally kind of overwhelming. Yeah, me too. And what did you think about what they said about scope and sequence? So I really like that they equated it to the athletic field, which is what I was saying in the beginning Mm -hmm. of this, Mm -hmm. that, you know, you you need to practice and you need to go and build on your skills before you have the test. So they were talking about having a good amount of time between instruction and application. And I know I had practices in high school for sports where it was just, you know, working on one particular skill before we applied it in a whole setting. So like fielding ground balls over and over again, once you have that skill, okay, we can put it into a full field thing where everyone's moving and there's runners and there's batters and there's a whole bunch of other things going on. So I really liked that analogy and trying to decipher between, you know, big ideas versus facts, like when kids need to know the big ideas versus when they need to practice those facts. And big ideas is definitely more useful as an expert learner because you can apply that big idea from one even content to the next like they were talking about too. So I did like that sequence and learning from results before, you know, your performance. And I think that even goes in music too. I know we have a music teacher and I think Mm -hmm. that kind of scope and sequence works really well. You know, you can't perform in a recital if you don't know how to play the violin first kind of thing. Yeah. So I think it's the same thing with academic. When you're thinking about sequence, you're also less likely to be doing the discrete skill thing we were just talking earlier about, because if you're just teaching things, isolated, discrete facts, then the sequence probably doesn't really matter as much. Right. But if you're building towards something, it makes it a lot more, uh, it matters a lot more. Right. And they mention it specifically about math. I know you asked about that and I wrote about it too, even before seeing that, that like, The old sequence of math was about cumulative logical development. And now it's, you know, you want to show it's interesting and motivational first Mm -hmm. and then practice that skill. So I really like that. I use like a video to draw them in or an activity that draws them in. And yes, there's a logical sequence to follow and there's skills you need, like we were just saying. But the motivation to actually do that skill, I think, has to be there first before even teaching the skill itself. This is the part in on page 296, right? When they talk yes, about exactly. sequencing mm-hmm. and math. Do you think the sequencing is helpful now? Yeah, I mean, even relating it back to, again, when I was in high school, I think it was more like, okay, this is what the textbook says we need to do next. This is what um, the next chapter is. And now it's more like, okay, let's do it in a way where you're practicing these skills and these motivational techniques that draws them in and then they're like innately asking that why or how or like can we go deeper with this kind of thing because they do want to know more once they're motivated Mm -hmm. you need to know how to do abc before you get to xyz but drawing in their interest is definitely something that i like to work on number one but i don't know if a lot of teachers in the past did that 
even though this article is from 2005, I think, like you said. Well, it seems like it did it for you, right? Because you were, you said you were good at math. Yes. And it wasn't for from some intrinsic interest that you would just, you just no, like it? I don't know if I ever really loved math. I just was good at it. Hmm. I think there's, you know, a difference. But my mom loves math. Hmm. Loves, loves. And my brother also. So I think maybe I got it from them. Hmm. Whereas my dad is a super history, social studies, hmm. loves that. So maybe I, that's why hmm. I am the way I am. I don't really remember math classes when I took them being motivational. It was just kind of come in, take your notes, do the problems, take the test, go kind of thing. So they didn't really have to hook you into no. it. I mean, that always helps when students are already interested in something. It's, it's yeah, usually the so. students who are intrinsically interested that's harder I know I was motivated myself to learn about history because I liked it. But I I guess this goes for any subject, too. How do you motivate those kids that are absolutely not motivated, cannot connect to the content? Why are we learning about the ancient Egyptians when we're over here in America hundreds of years later, I think, would definitely be my question there, since it said start with motivation. I'm not sure how much ancient Egyptian history is in social studies curriculum in general, but you're talking about any ancient history. Yeah, right? I just yeah, I just picked one. I well, I, I mean, that's a tricky answer for me. Yeah, to, uh, yes. I think for me, because just because I tend to like history, I like to know where ideas come from. Yeah, and so for me, that's often what motivates me to learn about history, just to see where different ideas, concepts things we take for granted every day come from. I think in a way history has an advantage in that it's usually a narrative or not usually, but it, it should be taught kind of in a narrative form. You know, that's in movies and games that are set in ancient history and they don't really need to do anything. It's a lot easier to draw the player in or draw the viewer in through that. Like, it's is there a reason or is there a practical reason for someone to, to need to understand ancient Egyptian history in kind of everyday context other than maybe like in a trivia game or something probably not right. jeopardy but maybe jeopardy yeah there's a finite number of amount of time that we have in school the students have in school and so there's always something you need to cut out and so anytime we talk about what should be included and, and excluded uh it's always a um, challenge and and then you know and then there's the argument of the kind of the well-rounded individual so that maybe everyone should be exposed to the arts, whether they end up being musicians or not. I think that's a valuable thing. Unfortunately, that gets cut very often. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not very satisfied with that answer, but right. I feel like it's just one of those things that, that teachers should try to draw the students in. I do like that this these two articles especially, but that the whole design process lets you start from scratch, but it also lets you go back and make your old units better mm -hmm. and I think that kind of really hones in on the idea and the want that teachers are constantly learning and growing and how are you developing professionally is I know something I get assessed on all the time what have you done from the last time I met with you to make yourself better so that to me the design process would 100% be a great way to improve and develop and make everything stronger and more well-rounded in the earlier chapter on uh, figure 11.9, there's a very complex graphic on, you know, the unit design cycle so that it's not just you develop it and then that's it. Ideally, you go through these different reviews. 
stages. Yep. So that you get feedback from students, from your own reflection, from peers, experts, whatever. Ideally, so yeah, it is good to think of it as a process and not as a one-time thing. Exactly. So, do you have any other things you want to add or questions? I think I'm good. Well, I guess then that wraps up this episode. Sounds good to me. Next week will be our last episode of this season, where we'll go back to the beginning and talk about some of the authors that we started this class with. I want to thank you, Danielle, for being on this episode. Yes, thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye.